Welcome everyone to Just Crypto. My name is Vanessa. We have an amazing show here. Uh, knowledge is going to drop from the sky. So if you are not listening, uh, get listening, get focused. This is going to be an amazing session. We're going to cover everything from Monero, uh, NFTs on Monero, what the hell, uh, to decentralization, security of hardware wallets. We've got kind of an expert in the space with us to talk through all of those things. Uh, before we get started, uh, as always, nothing here is financial advice. Uh, neither Donnelly nor myself are financial advisors. You will get wrecked if you follow uh, YouTubers or folks on Twitter for financial advice. Don't do it. I have also heard that it helps you to absorb the information if you like and subscribe to this video. So I encourage you, if you're watching, like, subscribe. Uh, it's good for your soul uh, and it's good for the channel. So uh, that's where everything is. We do on the show also like to have people who are live and following along. If you are live following along, just drop hi in chat. Let us know that you're here. Uh, we will take questions, comments from uh, all of y'all. And if you're watching later, I uh, would love to hear your thoughts on the show as well. So with all of that, uh, let me uh, introduce Donnelly. Uh, Donnelly began his uh, cryptocurrency dev work by building a Bitcoin wallet in 2018. Um, very impressive. Um, his passion for cryptocurrencies eventually led him to building privacy product uh, products focused on Monero. Uh, Donnelly, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me, Vanessa. Yeah, no, it's, it's great. And I've been following you on Twitter and some of your fantastic threads for a long time. So looking forward to this. Um, so, you know, as we get we get started here, I'd, I'd love if you could share uh, your journey into crypto. Uh, I imagine you didn't uh, start building a, a Bitcoin wallet, but like, what, where did you first discover it? What was your journey like? Um, it's very funny because I went to a math and science school in Mississippi. So I actually first heard about Bitcoin. I think this was like 2013. And it's actually one of my physics teachers was actually mining it in the school's closet using GPU miners. And one, <laughs> one of my... Um, it's a dormitory school. So one of my um, um, floor mates, they were building rigs. You know, we used to be like a, we were able to mine Bitcoin with like a GPU and a milk crate. So we were, that's my further introduction into it. So I just sort of heard about it. Of course, when you're in the tech space, you, it just comes up. And I studied computer science. So I eventually um, went to school, learned, learned how to write code. And then one semester, I actually built a very old, old business, business called Incognito Deals. It was pretty much the same thing in our shop, but then it let you, um, I was a middleman for buying things with the Monero. Then after I caught that bug, I was like, oh, like <laughs> I can like build code and have people pay me for building this code and doing things like that. I'm like, oh, that's really cool. So then I just pursued that and then here I am. <laughs> that's amazing i just love that you had such a great introduction so early on uh you know from yeah. your, from your physics teacher mm -hmm. <laughs> uh hopefully he kept all those bitcoin in mind because uh he's he's probably doing pretty well by now yeah hopefully i know he got in trouble i think a uh, fuse was blown so it was like hey the principal's like hey you have to stop doing that <laughs> <So>. <laughs> dang everyone's always ruining the fun yeah. <laughs> Um, so, uh, so I mean, it sounds like you started with, with, with Bitcoin uh, with mm -hmm. quite a great introduction. Uh, where did you dabble after Bitcoin before finding Monero? Or was it straight from Bitcoin to Monero? Um, well, uh, my story first starts with reading Andreas's Mastering Bitcoin. I'm sure everyone, if you're doing anything educational in space, you know Andreas Anopoulos. He was like one of the first people to do it. So I started with mastering uh, Bitcoin, built Bitcoin products, played around with Ethereum. They built, um, had a kind of like, wrote some Solidity code, things like that. And I eventually ended up with Monero right now. Oh, fantastic. And, and what drew mm -hmm. you to Monero in particular? Um, you know, obviously we're a fan of Monero on the show, but uh, why, why are you in Monero? Um, I love Monero because of the use case, which is today, I feel like a lot of coins, 
get their value from, I guess, speculation in a way. Like this will be X in a couple of years. But right now, privacy is important and Monero provides that today. So as a person who likes to build things, like I can build something today and create value today. I don't have to worry about like, oh, will this be useful in 10 years? It's useful today. And I, I can see those results. They're much more tangible for me. Uh, so tell, tell us a little bit, like, why is privacy important? Uh, the, the argument could be, if you're doing nothing wrong, why do you need privacy? Privacy is important. Oh, that's such a big topic. I would say, I guess to that specific question, I would say that what you're doing today, you might not be viewed as wrong, but the laws always change, of course. Because, I mean, we all know things. You could open a book from, like, the 1930s. People might be doing things that at the time was, was seen as fine. And then, but they're documented doing that thing. You go in today, it's not seen as good. So what, like, governments change all the time, empires change all the time, but the unfortunate thing about technology is that it at times can be permanent. Once you put a photo out, it's it can be saved millions of times. So privacy is important when it comes to text, your purchases, right? Because you buy something that's legal today, and then what if they ban it tomorrow and they, have make, they come and take it from you? Like, they did gold, essentially. At some point, gold was legal, so they, they might record you buying it, and then when, it became, when they banned it, you had to turn your gold in. So those things like that sort of... You know, what's what's good changes so often. So you need privacy to hide your actions, whether you deem them good or bad, I believe. That's interesting. With the blockchain in particular, it's kind of permanent forever. So it's, it's much more important even than the picture on the Internet. Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about NFTs. Uh, so just, Ooh. you know, I think this was one of the reasons I was excited to talk to you was, uh, was about <laughs> NFTs. And I'll admit I was surprised to, to see NFTs show up on Bitcoin as ordinals. Um, but I mm -hmm. thought to myself, surely, surely the pristine blockchain that is Monero would never tolerate anything as sullied <laughs> as this. Uh, so uh, maybe you could tell, uh, you know, for, for folks who aren't familiar, like what is an NFT on, on, on Bitcoin? How is it different than an NFT on Ethereum? Um, I would say, because I mean, even, even what, I'm going to just um, preempt this, what NFT is can be highly subjective, right? Because even, even when I talked about Monero NFT, someone was like, that's not a real NFT. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just going to give my very loose definition of NFT is something that um, you can embed something into a blockchain and then you can trade that object around, usually as a form of a token, essentially. So Ethereum, generally speaking, when you have an NFT, you have all different smart contracts and someone will embed a hash in, into the different smart contracts. Then they'll pass ownership of that hash around. And should I go over what a hash is or does your, think your audience... Yeah, uh, yeah that's actually maybe an important important concept uh, and you know so, so you know generally i think as we talk about hashes we get a little bit deeper into the tech stack right so if you could unwrap that for folks that'd be great oh yes yeah, so i'm gonna try to so basically i don't want to get too deep into weeds but if, if you use a good hash essentially it allows you to prove that and something exists and tie it to the blockchain without um putting the whole image on the on the blockchain essentially so generally, like a SHA-256, you've probably heard about that, is the mining algorithm for Bitcoin, which is also a hash algorithm. But it, it, it can take any data and compress it down to 256 bytes, and that's unique. So if, if you put that hash on the blockchain, it's proof that you had that image specifically, but it doesn't necessarily reveal what that image is until you show the world what the image is. Then people can calculate the hash. So pretty much a short way of putting arbitrary size data onto a blockchain and proving that it's unique, essentially, is what a hash is. 
Okay, that's a that's a very simple and great explanation of it. And so so how does Bitcoin differ from Ethereum? Like Ethereum has to have smart contracts for NFTs, but Bitcoin obviously doesn't have smart contracts. Oh yeah, that is um that is that is that is true. And two might be surprised by this, but um there was a recent change in Bitcoin. There was a recent change, I think Taproot activated on Bitcoin and it sort of changed how data can be embedded into the actual blockchain. So right now, Bitcoin is unique in the sense that, generally speaking, you, you don't put the entire image on the blockchain. But due to some weird, like, I guess, unforeseen rule changes, you can now embed an entire image. Even, excuse me, I've seen videos, MP4s, audios embedded in the Bitcoin blockchain. Not a hash of it, right? Their entire Bitcoin blockchain. And, and, and the reason you can do this comes from, like, um, several technology changes starting from like um short signatures taproot and segment things like that so it goes back years right but um that's pretty much the, the big deal someone realizing hey i can put entire images on the bitcoin blockchain now and then i, I can design a system to trade them which is as we all saw change change bitcoin essentially that, that's kind of crazy. And, and so the reaction <laughs> that I've seen from most Bitcoiners is, uh, get your JPEGs off my sound money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why, are, why are people upset about it? Um, I guess it depends on the, who you define upset about. I just guess that some people see Bitcoin as like hard money. Some people see Bitcoin as like gold. There's different things. I don't, I don't think Bitcoin has a strong community identity that agree on what it is. So obviously, it's someone putting monkey JPEGs on your blockchain. <laughs> you're like, no, this is like revolutionary, you know, government money, government resistant money. We have like this is, has no place in this. But the funny thing is that they can't really stop them due to technology reasons, which get, comes into play later because I don't believe Monero could stop something like this also from happening. But that's essentially the, the basic idea. Is there any sort of security risk or any other kind of risk by putting these NFTs in Bitcoin? Um. I don't believe there's a security. There's not a security risk, I would say, but there might be like a slight, like psychological risk to privacy. I would say, but not a security risk. I, I would say that no. Uh, talk, talk us through a bit about the the privacy risk, because I guess we'll get to that more as we talk about Monero. But for Bitcoin in particular, you know, if you you have an NFT on on the blockchain, how does that risk someone's privacy? Um, because the way an NFT functions on the specific Bitcoin blockchain, which is obviously different from Ethereum because they have a, one is like a UTXO based um, blockchain. One is like a, an account based um, blockchain. But the way they work on Bitcoin, they assign, they assign it to um, some Satoshis, a group of Satoshis. And then that NFT is tied to that Satoshi. You can track it across the blockchain. And I personally believe that it becomes like not, not a, a security issue, but a privacy issue because now when people use Bitcoin, they're going to always check if their Satoshi is an NFT, right? Because you might get lucky and someone might send you one accidentally. And then boom, you have a Satoshi that's worth, you know, 10 Bitcoin, one Bitcoin. So you're, you're always going to keep checking it back in your mind, right? Is this, a, is this a special Satoshi? And that sort of ruins the idea of fungibility, right? Because all Satoshis mm. should be equal. But if you assign one more value, they're not equal. And then you get into this game of constantly checking it, what your Satoshi is and they lose their fungibility in a way. But that's like a sociological idea, right? It's not like in the blockchain inherently, 
I just something that I believe could be a, a bad outcome of NFTs on the blockchain. It's actually interesting you talk about it in relation to fungibility because there's other mm -hmm. ways that Bitcoin's not you know fully fungible. Like the the freshly minted Bitcoin has a slight premium on secondhand Bitcoin, as it were. Um, you know, Bitcoin that is illicit obviously is blocked in certain wallets, and that's got mm -hmm. uh, you know the opposite of premium. Uh, it's at a discount, um, and so it's interesting to see all these places where Bitcoin fungibility is under attack. Oh yeah, and I would say this is way worse than attacks. You, I don't, I don't want to call it attack because I feel like I'm taking sides. I, um, this <laughs> instance, right, is way worse than any fungibility Bitcoin faced in the past. Because generally speaking, right, are you familiar with like the like the OFAC list and restricting Bitcoin addresses to different people and things like that? Yeah, maybe if you could share for the audience, like, what is the OFAC list? How does restricting work? You know, they might be thinking Bitcoin is uncensorable and you can't stop it. It's just the blockchain. Oh. Okay, so that would be partly true, but you can definitely somewhat censor certain transactions. And the OFAC list is a list that the government puts out saying these are bad Bitcoin addresses. And as an American citizen entity, you cannot interact with these addresses. And they're clear. And OFAC list has probably like thousands at this point. And they, they might belong to like some someone that America doesn't like, like some Russian, some Russian person, a, a Chinese entity, things like that. So they say as an American, you cannot touch this list anyone on this list. You cannot touch it. And that, and that shows up in different ways. For example, like a lot of Bitcoin mining is done in the United States. And for the most part, those Bitcoin miners cannot touch certain OFAC restricted lists. They just, because like, you don't want to touch this list, you will have fans at your door very quickly and you will be charged with facilitating drugs, facilitating terrorism and things like that. And then, but generally speaking, right, me and you, um, like if, if I go to Coinbase and buy Bitcoin, it's not going to be on that OFAC list. So most um, most people don't even know that that list exists. But so there's not really such a big issue for people spending their Bitcoin, right? But everyone knows NFTs exist now. So everyone's going to be checking their wallet, which is funny, right? Cuz like <laughs> no one cares when it's like you, you you can go you can go to federal prison for spending a Bitcoin. No one really checks, but once it's like you can make money from checking your Bitcoin against this um <laughs> NFT list, everyone's like, "Whoa, I'm going to do that now." I even saw a tweet from I think Adam Adam Beck saying that if he had a rare in a, a rare Satoshi, he would sell it and just get more bitcoins, which is interesting because he would have to check, right? That means he's constantly checking his Bitcoin wallet against some list of like rare Satoshis, which and then he would like he missed or not funded, which is a very interesting issue. But I, I think this issue is much worse than the fungibility issues Bitcoin's faced in the past for those reasons. It's fascinating. It's almost like all we need to do to get people to pay attention to which UTXO they're using is to put some monkey picks in. Who <laughs> 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 would have guessed monkey picks was, was going to bring the, this issue to the, the, the surface? <laughs> it almost makes me feel like when you're doing your, your regular dollar cost averaging of Bitcoin, mm -hmm. it's kind of like buying a lottery ticket. You just never know what might come along with it. That's really funny. I didn't think about that. Yeah, you, you, you might get lucky. Someone might make a mistake and send you a UTXO that's a monkey JPEG is worth 10, 20 Bitcoin. <laughs> that would be crazy. Man, it just crypto is world changing, life changing. Yeah. Um, I do want to pause and, and just say hi to Sir Karen. Uh, always great to have you here who's into the chat contingently. Uh, Sir Karen and I had a great conversation <laughs> about contingent staking and Cardano. So if you, uh, you're you watching along and you haven't seen it, uh, you know, pop into the previous video. He does a, a great job kind of defending uh, contingent staking. Obviously, I'm on the other side of that. Um, let's jump into Monero and NFTs, uh, Donnelly. Uh, so, you know, Bitcoin's got NFTs, but but surely Monero can't have them. Um, how can Monero get NFTs? It's private, right? Like, 
Uh, well, the 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 good side and the and the bad side is that Monero can have NFTs, but the good side is that they're they could be private NFTs, for example. And the and the way that would work is well, the basic idea of NFT, right? Is you put an object on the chain, and then you create some way to transfer that object back and forth. Ethereum, it looks like hashes, generally speaking, Bitcoin or knows its entire image is placed on a blockchain. And then a lot of people said Monero couldn't do this because it's private, et cetera, et cetera. But there's this feature in Monero that isn't used by a lot of people, but it's called the TX Extra option on a transaction. And and once again, just it's so interesting because all of these genius designs have un like unthought of outcomes, right? So TX Extra is pretty much lets you put data onto the blockchain. Most most blockchains have this. Zcash has this. Not a big issue, right? But the issue with Monero is that Monero has currently has unlimited block scaling. So the blocks can be as big as you're willing to pay to make them. So that so someone could put a, a, a video on Monero yeah. and have yeah. it be like 100 gigs and... Mm-hmm. If, if you're willing to pay the fee and, and the miner, of course, is willing to accept fee, which why wouldn't they if it's a massive fee? Yep, you can put, I think someone's put like entire um, PDFs on Monero's blockchain, different transactions. So it's very interesting. So they're, they're using essentially a combination of this extra field and the ability for dynamic block size on Monero to embed mm-hmm. pretty much anything. Um, now, yep. is that a problem? Why, why is it a problem? Ooh. Oh, we're getting into some very highly opinionated topics. So I'm just going <laughs> to censor this. This is my opinion. This is um, not an objective opinion. But I would say it's a problem mainly for two reasons. You could, you would have um, privacy issues once you, because once you make one transaction um, stand out on the blockchain, that could, in theory, hurt the rest of the blockchain's privacy, given the way that Monero works. And then number two is scaling, right? Because, I mean, obviously... If 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 I have to da- um, run a node, I'm gonna have to download this. You know, if you want to put a one gigabyte file, on, I'm gonna have to download this file onto my node in order to verify it, which is which it slows down um, uh, making a node and it slows down the de- decentralization of the network, right? Because if you have like one gigabyte size blocks, right, that's not not sustainable in the long run. Couldn't couldn't someone essentially attack Monero and out by just putting a few hundred gigabytes onto the blockchain and it, it kind of ruins the ability for anyone to run a node? Uh yeah, they well it would it would make it harder and they could do that. I think Zcash was experiencing a like spam attack similar to that was because they have really low fees. The thing with Monero is the fees are relatively high, right? Like, yeah, you you it does scale, but you have to pay um, a lot more money to scale it past a certain size. There's like penalty. It's, it's not a linear type scaling. But in theory, if, if you were attacking with unlimited money, yeah, you could drop, you know, however Monero to do that. Just, uh, and maybe, you you know, I'm asking two specific questions, but mm-hmm. I, I know that, uh, you know, recently the, the IRS put out a, a contract for a half a million dollars or $625,000 to see if mm-hmm. anyone could break Monero or Lightning. And I guess they broke Lightning, but they didn't break Monero. Uh, couldn't a government agency just throw you know five million dollars at it and uh, stop Monero from, from continuing, or or is the price tag a lot higher at, at, to put that much information on? I would say the price tag would would be a lot higher. Now, and my issue with that is I think find the if finding the coordination within because we all know governments are um, not known for the ability to act quickly in the face of technology, <laughs> technology changes. Like thankful for that. 
Yeah, they're they're just now getting into what Bitcoin is. So, but theoretically, if you had a state level attacker who knew what they were doing, they they could do the attack. But then what probably would happen really fast is that the network would fork and, and say, "Hey, you the TX Extra is limited now, no more." So you might you might be able to get away with it for a little bit, but the network will quickly come together and say, "No more," and, and cut you off. And oh, it'll be pretty correct. quick. Yeah, yeah, it'd be yeah. it'd be pretty quick, right? If you're like, "Wow, this transaction is two gigabytes now. They pay like a million dollars for it." We need to stop that, and, and there there'll be a very. You wouldn't find anyone that's like, no, 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 wait, wait. We do need we need to have these massive block sizes. So it'd be pretty quick movement to stop it. That, that's great. So be uh, thank you, government, for the donation, and we're going to continue <laughs> yeah. continue as we were. Um, well, one thing that you know, as we're talking about the the TX extra field, uh, that got me a little concerned is couldn't the uh, the government force uh, folks wherever you're getting the Monero to essentially, uh, you know, is, is in cash where they say like uh, unmarked bills. Couldn't they mark the Monero uh, coins uh, or the, the UTXOs through that same method and track you? Um, you couldn't just using the TX extra. You couldn't mark the UTXOs, but there is there has been fears. So you're not you're onto something, Vanessa. There have been fears that exchanges will make you put your information in the TX extra essentially which would hurt the privacy of you and the network, but you couldn't necessarily track the UTXOs just from using TX Extra. So it, it, it is an issue, but it's not like a game-ending issue. Gotcha. Do, do you know if any of them do today? I know you can buy Monero and Kraken right now. Um... Uh, I haven't checked if they put any specific information because just by the way, all transactions on Monero currently use that TX Extra for like payment ID, like a dummy payment ID. But specifically for that, I when I use Kraken, I mean, I haven't checked my transactions. I don't think they do that. Okay, awesome. I mean, that, that that's good to know for folks who yeah. are, are here in the U.S. Um, so, uh, you know, one thing that that I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with is, say you do put an NFT, uh, you mm -hmm. know, on, on Monero, and say it's, you know, it's not 100 gigabytes, it's just your monkey picture. And, um, <laughs> you know, one of the things that people like to do is kind of brag about their NFTs and put them on their profile picture. Mm -hmm. But Monero is private, right? So how would anyone ever be able to know and prove that I've got this NFT? Oh, yeah. Monero's private by default, which is really cool, versus other chains, which you have to opt into privacy. So in theory, right, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep it super high level, but like kind of crude in impl implementation, just so like people can follow along. You could imagine in theory, right, how um, Monero has like view keys to view your toe. You, you could in theory be like, hey, I, I want to show, like if you were if you're a company and you want to get audited, you could give these view yeah. keys to your accountant, for example. Your account could go through and view all your transactions. Essentially, they couldn't spend the funds, right? Because it's not a spin key; yeah. it's, it's a view key. So, in theory, Vanessa, if you wanted to put your monkey JPEG on Monero, very crude way to do it would be to embed it in a transaction extra, and then show the world your view keys. So that way, everyone could see that, in fact, you gave the view keys, you own this TX extra in a way, things like that. But it's opt into it, right? Now, could you give a view key just for that particular UTXO? So that someone could just see the monkey picture, but not all of your transactions. Um, the the cryptographer. I'm not a cryptographer by trade, but the cryptography <laughs> around it is pretty. Um, I guess unexplored for that, but I would say yes. I've I've read like um zero to Monero. So around if if you were out there want to Google like Google this, if you look zero to Monero on page seventy nine, they go over what a like um a transaction proof looks like, a different proofs. And there is a proof listed that sh you can prove that you own a certain output, for example. So, yes. Sorry, that's, I, I, I just was studying this for for hours. So, sorry, it's super, super specific. But the short answer is yes. You, you could use a certain type of proof to only prove that you own 
that specific output to that address, et cetera, et cetera. I, I just love that you know the page that it's on. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. I'm, I'm still working through it right now, but I, I, love, I love that book. <laughs> so, so I've added a, a link uh, in in the chat to mm-hmm. uh, that, that particular book, uh, and, and yeah, I mean, I, I think it's maybe not common knowledge. Sikharin's commenting that he he didn't know that Monero had view keys uh, as well, so that's very cool. Yeah, I mean, Monero's. I mean, sorry, I, I, I don't want to seem like I'm shilling Monero, but if you're into cryptography, Monero is like super cool, super developed, super well documented too. So I would definitely zero Monero might be a little bit too heady for people, but they also Master Monero, which is also a free book they put out to educate people. Much higher level, but it's, it's really good. Master Monero is free. You, get, you find the PDFs on like GitHub. But like, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, like you have, you have like Zcash, which is like, I mean, their white paper is like, I think 56 pages, right? So I mean, I mean so not as heady as like, you know, Zcash or something, cryptography, but definitely way above what I've seen from like base layer Ethereum and from like Bitcoin. So really cool stuff. Is there, you know, now that you started talking a little bit about Zcash, like are there other projects you would say uh, come close to Monero in terms of the privacy guarantees or the the elegance of the cryptographic systems? Ooh, okay. Um, Once again, I don't want to say I'm shilling any projects. I guess I I could, I could break it down into like different categories for you. Yeah, I think that would be great. Yeah, as far as what I think the most elegant privacy solution is, maybe not the most effective, but the most elegant private solution is going to definitely be um, anything Mimblewimble based. It is like, like the moment I, I I read the Mimblewimble white paper, I was like, I had to go reassess how I thought of blockchains in general. And and just a quick overview, Mimblewimble is this really elegant paper. I think it's like six pages long, like super super short. I mean, given it doesn't have any imp- implementation details in it, so it sort of cheats in that way. But it's, it's this really short paper. That basically arranges it, it, its approach to privacy arranges the transactions in a way that they can cancel each other out, essentially. So, like, it's you're not encrypting them per se; you're actually eliminating them from the blockchain. So, to an outside view, they might never exist, right? So, it's super elegant in the sense that it's great for privacy, and it's also super elegant that it's great for scaling because you can just eliminate the transactions, and boom, the transactions didn't exist. My head's exploding. How yeah. does that? So you have a blockchain that's immutable mm-hmm. um, that records all the transactions, and then you have a technique that destroys the transaction. How does that work? Uh, I guess super, um, super very. I'm give a super very high level exactly. Let's say, um, let's say we have three people. You have Vanessa, Donnelly, and Sam. Let's say Vanessa sent Donnelly money, and then Donnelly sent Sam money. And if and you don't really care about the fact that Vanessa sent Donnelly money, you can record that transaction and shorten it by just cutting out Donnelly and just recording on the blockchain Vanessa sent Sam money, right? Ah, uh, so it's it's at the point yeah. that the second transaction happens, uh, you, you just say, hey, like, don't keep the full history of of those blocks. Yeah, and, and it's like super. I mean, like, it's like literally six pages. The math isn't too heavy. I would recommend anyone read it if you have, you know, no. Most people don't have a lot of copious amounts of time to read cryptography papers, but it's super <laughs> cool. Like, it's, it's like when, you, when you think about that, like, oh, so technically a blockchain doesn't really need to know any intermediary transactions, just the starting state and the final state of all the coins, right? You can just eliminate everything in between, which is like super cool. It, it has its problems, right? Which I don't want to get into like the technical details, but like as a concept in a white paper is like super cool. 
It's making me think a little bit about L2s on Ethereum and zero-knowledge mm. proofs, where essentially you could do a bunch of transactions, but at the point that it gets settled, like you just know the, the, the settlement transaction. You don't necessarily know everything else that's happened. Yeah, and there's actually a cool paper where someone used Mimblewimble type um, reductions on Ethereum's blockchain. Because the way zero-knowledge proofs work, they can be very bulky because they have like these eternal things that keep track of everything. But you can use Mimblewimble in combination with that and remove certain zero-knowledge proofs totally also, which is really cool. So you can combine the two technologies. I, I don't know if it was implemented. But I know it was a white paper with the implementation built. I don't know if anyone's using it today. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to indulge my, my own curiosity uh -huh. here because I think you have a knowledge of cryptography that's, that's a lot stronger than mine. Okay. Um, I, I know that different blockchains have used different kinds of you know uh, public key cryptography, elliptical mm -hmm. curve cryptography. Um, you know, privacy aside, just as we look at the security, um, are, there, are there differences that you think are meaningful in the choices that different blockchains have made as far as the, the kind of algorithms they're using? Oh, I mean, super, super. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, yes. Yeah, sorry. I, I might be a little <laughs> biased because I, I read this stuff for fun, but like definitely, right? I'll, if you strip out the culture around, which is big, right? The, the Twitter, the YouTube, the the people talking about it, like, like all you have in a day is cryptography and consensus models. Yeah. So, I mean, definitely the consensus models matter and definitely the cryptography matter, matters so much. You can, you can talk for hours about those different things. Yeah. Is there, is there anyone you point to and say, you know, this blockchain has chosen a better kind of cryptography scheme than another blockchain? Um, or, or is that maybe getting a little too deep? Uh... No, I, I hope the people in the crowd don't don't get angry at me because I'm, I'm a narrow fan, but I would say um, Zcash's Zcash's has has worked to a point today where their cryptography is, is is complex, but definitely beautiful and very practical. And I would say if you were to take, I'm gonna say this, put an asterisk. If you were to make certain changes, Zcash, if and you're and you're strictly looking at on chain and like anonymity size, like how private is this chain, like how anonymous is it? I would say Zcash's use of zero knowledge proof or Something like Zcash's um, use of zero knowledge proofs. I mean, theoretically, they're, they're like leak no metadata, theoretically. And it's like, it's beautiful. It's definitely beautiful. Awesome. Awesome. So, so props out for, for Zcash and their techniques. Oh, oh, yeah. Definitely. I think um, something they went wrong with was, and it's not wrong, developing this technology was like, they were the first people to do. I think the zero, like, I think Matt Green had a big part, like the zero coin white paper to came out. I want to say like, I'm bad with time, maybe like 2016 out of John Hopkins. So the technology has advanced very far, but I, I do think one thing they went wrong with was it, the the transparent blockchain came first, and then people got used to that, and then as a zero, the shielded transactions built up, I think people are still used as a culture to using the the, the um, very transparent very transparent addresses, which is an issue, but it, it has its issues, but I think theoretically, just looking at the, the, the cryptography and theory, Zcash is great. Fantastic. Um, mm -hmm. I, I almost want to indulge a conspiracy theory and, and get your mm -hmm. thoughts. So part of me uh, believes, and, and, and please don't hate me on the channel, that um, Satoshi was someone from the NSA who wanted to get us all using a transparent system that the federal government could track. Um, I, I'm wondering if that's a thought that's crossed your mind, just given you know the lack of privacy on blockchains, or just tell me, Vanessa, you're crazy. Uh, no, no. I mean, definitely not. I, I could... Mm. That, that argument has been made on Bitcoin Talk plenty of times. And also, um, there are also different arguments, given the way that Satoshi has chosen the, the specific cryptographic primitives, 
that there might be a back door in them also. And there's like this, Ooh. there's this debate around that. It's super heady. Uh, I think Gregory Maxwell chimes in like a Bitcoin talk forum post I can send to you later, but it's like really cool. And, and the conclusion is like, we, it's probably not backdoor, but we can't be a hundred percent sure that it's not essentially. So that goes right in hand with your idea of like someone building Bitcoin to be transparent. But I, I'll be really sad because I, I look at these early people as like heroes, like, like how yeah. Finney. I read his stuff. I'm like, oh, oh, oh my god! So to think that Satoshi might have been NSA, it it would it, it would cause some moral some 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 crises for me. But it's very <laughs> real possible. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm I, I'm very much with you. You know, back back when I was uh, interested in some of this, uh, David Charm and Phil Zimmerman <sighs> were kind of the the cypherpunk heroes that I, yeah. I looked up to. Um. Yeah, Sukkur and saying um, there's, there's no way they were confident enough to create Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's it, right? The, the government's not confident enough, so we're saved. I definitely um, see that. And also there's this history of where you can see um, actually Satoshi releasing the source code and seeing it evolve over time versus like something like um, if, if you're familiar with, if, if your idea is that some entity made a coin to scam people, Monero's history is much more like that actually than bitcoin's history given uh, satoshi's clear progression versus um monero's like history which is i get into that but that's really uh, monero has a schedule history than bitcoin by far <laughs> uh, so so you, you you've teased it now because uh, you know i had doug on the show earlier obviously very pro bitcoin mm -hmm. i'm sorry yeah. pro, pro monero um uh, you know mm -hmm. tell us about the sketchy history of monero uh well i don't want to i don't want to I don't, want, I don't want to cut it too short, but I also don't want to get too down. I can talk all day, so sorry if I'm, you're like, okay, you got to speed up. Um, basically, someone made a coin that they had pre-mined, essentially, but the technology they created was very unique and um, was very unique, and that um, technology was CryptoNote, and that technology was eventually forked off from this original original coin. It was Bitcoin, was what opinionated statement, I believe was a scam, and I think other people... Like in a space just says fluffy pony has also voiced that opinion also in the past, I believe. So it was forked away into BitMonero, which was also sketchy history, and then it was forked eventually into Monero. So the technology was like sort of laundered in different ways because but the technology is great, but someone pretty much made a coin, pre-mined it with good technology and hopes it would catch on. Then they would have all these bags of coins, right? So it was not a fair launch. But Monero saved all that, and of course, it's not related to this game in like culture, just tech um, technological primitives. Huh, that, that's very in interesting. Yeah. So uh, whereas people refer to Bitcoin as having an immaculate conception, uh, one could yeah. almost say that Monero had the opposite of whatever an immaculate conception is. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, I mean, I think that was a like a watershed moment. No one could have immaculate conception. You, you get Zcash, right? You have like the, the trusted setup, the founders, the companies behind that. If, if you look at things like Ethereum, you have like the pre-mine for Ethereum, which is hot topic. So I mean, I can't think of a coin outside of things like Grin that have sort of like this idea. I don't think Grin's doing too well today also. So it's like, it's just, when you, when you evolve money, you know, this is how things go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, we're human. There's fear and greed yeah. and all of that, that good stuff. Uh, we, we didn't finish our discussion about JPEGs. Um, so we've, oh, gotten, yes. <laughs> we've gotten to the point where, uh, you know, we can put them on Monero. You can expose your view key potentially even mm -hmm. at the UTXO level to see these NFTs. Mm -hmm. um, but can the devs, please do something so JPEGs don't sell in my pure blockchain. What's happening there? Are, are they planning to stop it? How could they stop it? Uh, I don't think you can. I'm a, my opinion, right? I'm not a cryptographer. I'm not a Monero dev, but I've heard really good theories about 
if you if you restrict TX extra and you do all these things to restrict the protocol down, people who really, really, really want NFTs will just do something else, right? They'll embed the data mm -hmm. in different parts of the chain. And it could be worse, for example, right? They, they could embed it in like outputs, which somehow makes the outputs like poisoned in a way. Then if, when you use them in your transaction, it could greatly hurt your transaction. They could embed it in maybe like maybe somewhere. This is very high level. I've only... I can't verify that this is possible, but I've heard that you might be able to put it in things like the bulletproof, things like that. So there's this fear that people will just, if you stop them at the front door, right, they'll just go find the back door, which could be worse, essentially. <laughs> yeah, it's the age old thing is you, you fix one bug, now you have three. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I do want to say hi. And if you are in chat, you just pop a hi. Let us know that you're here. I want to say hi to South Padre Tony, obviously hey. another uh, Monero uh, fan. Great to have you on the channel. Uh, let's go gaming. Hey, welcome. Uh, you know, always great to have you stop by. Um, you know, uh, one thing I love about the, these shows is we get folks with lots of diverse interests and perspective here. Mm -hmm. and, and I just enjoy, you know, that we get to have those conversations. So um, JPEGs on Monero, we, you know, still under investigation, not exactly sure what's going to be done or whether anything should yeah. be done. Yeah, it's uh, I think I think the community agrees that something should be done. And I think the basic idea right now is to simply restrict the TX extra, right? Restrict its size um, via relaying. So essentially only miners can make unlimited TX extra transactions. Okay, interesting. And so so they, they believe that that will uh, remove the worst of uh, what could happen, but still maintain the functionality. I think you mentioned like payment IDs was something that it was used for, for yeah. example. And like I think I think atomic swaps, different layer twos use them also to store because storing arbitrary data can be a great anchor for any protocol built on top of it. So I think that that's sort of sort of a good stopgap right now. I think it's limited to like one thousand kilobytes, which is still quite large, but not like unlimited where it is now. I mean, we all know six hundred and forty kilobytes should be enough for anyone. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'm revealing my age with that with that quote. <laughs> I, I did also want to shout out quickly to. Uh, Rose City PKM, uh, welcome. Uh, Accelerate Profits, happy Sunday. Um, and TFM had a question. Uh, ask him what he thinks about the secret network and why Monero is better. So let's, you know, maybe jump onto that before we move on to different things. Do you know about secret? Um, I do not. Could you tell me about it? <laughs> maybe not to the level that you could comment on why it's better or not, but uh, we did have someone from Shade Protocol on this mm. channel uh, earlier. So uh, TFM, if you're looking, uh, look for Shade Protocol. We went, went into a little bit about Secret and some of the trade-offs between Secret and, and uh, Monero. Secret is an IBC, uh, you know, kind of Cosmos built chain. Um, it uses hardware-based encryption uh, to encrypt it. it. So it doesn't have homomorphic encryption that gives it a, uh, an advantage in terms of finality. It also has smart contracts on it. Um, but uh, my understanding is the encryption is not quite as uh, resilient. It's kind of, you know, whereas Monero has a uh, an encryption that's not dependent on hardware itself. That's my very short understanding of it. I'm not an expert by any fashion. Uh, yeah, so um, let, let's talk a little bit about, so we talked about private NFTs. There's a response that's mm -hmm. happening. We'll see if the, the, the cure is worth, worse than the disease. Um, is there anything else you want to share about NFTs uh, on Monero? Oh, NFTs on Monero? Well, um, outside of the technical, I would say whatever your opinion is, you should definitely show up to the Monero dev chats, those community meetings, and voice your opinion. Whether you think you shouldn't stop it and it's fine, you shouldn't stop it. Like I, I am, it, It's not my blockchain to decide that. It's to people who use it. So if you are a user on Monero and you're passionate about either way, you should definitely show and make your voice known because the dev, dev chat is open to anyone. Anyone can show up. They don't restrict 
people so you can show up and listen if you don't feel comfortable commenting just showing be like hey i vote for this would be really cool Awesome, awesome. And, and I do also, you know, I'll do a little shill here is that we do have a deal with the folks from Monerotopia. So that is happening, uh, you know, very soon. I think it's in May. Uh, if you would like to attend, it's in Mexico City. You can use code uh, TechPoet and you'll get 10% off. And, uh, you know, I'll get a little cut of that as well. So mm -hmm. if you're into Monero and you want to hang with some Monero peeps, uh, that's a great place to be. Oh, yeah, you should definitely go. I'll be there also. Um, Doug is also. I'm so excited. So please go if you can. Yeah, now, now I'm tempted. All the people I know are going to be there. I'm going to have to make the trip. <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned as, as well, you know, obviously you built a, a Bitcoin wallet. Tell, tell us a bit mm -hmm. about building a Bitcoin wallet. What's that experience? What expertise do you need? Uh, and, and why did you go through that exercise? Um, basically, this was like, oh, I'm so, wow, I feel so old. I'm thinking about like time. This was like, I think 2017. So at the, in 2017, if you want to do a multi-signature wallet, your best bet was to use Electrum and do different wallets like that. And it was kind of Electrum's beautiful wallet, but it's not um, as easy to use as what we have today. So my thought was, hey, I will build a, a wallet that allows people to use different, different hardware wallets, like a Trezor. My first round was a Trezor, Ledger, and a Cold Card. And that way you could use different hardware wallets and spread, spread the risk over them. And also the wallet had like mm -hmm. educational content in it also. So it's also bun sort of bundled into one. So, so you built something where essentially your multi-sig is across different hardware manufacturers of wallet. Yeah, and basically is what Casa does without like the like the white glove service. It's just like software that you pull up. And I think Nunchuck today also does that, but this is like 2017. This is crazy. I mean, your your, your uh, threat modeling is much stronger than mine of like <laughs> <laughs> different hardware devices on a multi-sig. It's very impressive. Yeah. Um, so one of the other um, things that you, you mentioned was around uh, quantum computers and, and Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe if you could tell us a little bit about like, what is a quantum computer? Why does it threaten the Bitcoin network? Is it, is it going to be safe? Is it going to be hacked? Um, I think that's a big topic Ooh. that maybe we haven't, uh, you know, as a community fully touched on or made aware of. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, basically, um, Super high level, you can think of a quantum computer that is several magnitudes more powerful than a traditional binary based computer today. It, it's, it's, if you get down deeper, there's like qubits in a way it does computations is fundamentally different, but you can zoom out and from an engineering perspective, like this is just a super, super powerful computer that could potentially break cryptography, some, crypto some cryptographic primitives. And that could be an issue for every every blockchain i think some blockchains are already working on making switches to do that essentially but it would be a a very large problem for bitcoin there's no there's no real fix to it right no one you you, you could patch it but there's do, do we have time to get into like the, the details? We, we, we definitely do uh, because I'm super curious and <laughs> uh, I'm happy to go a few minutes over and, and learn about all the details. So please. Yeah. Because remember how we mentioned hashes earlier? They, they are ways to take data and compress it down into a unique stream. Generally 256 um, bytes is used on, or bits, sorry, is used on Bitcoin. That itself is people theorize, people are way smarter than me, theorize that um, quantum computers won't be able to break that, at least the early ones won't. They, they won't be able to break the hash, the hashing portion of it, but they will be able to break the elliptic curve cryptography portion. Hmm. And this is important because most modern addresses use hashing to on the blockchain and the keys are revealed when you go to spin. So if you, if you, look, if you look at the Bitcoin blockchain today, 
some some addresses are just elliptic curve keys, which is bad, right? Quantum computers can break those, but um, I'd say the majority of them are going to be hashes, which are relatively safe from early um, quantum computers. But the issue is, right, if someone has a quantum computer and then they break Satoshi's elliptic curve cryptography, right, and they go to spend his coins, how do you stop them, right? Because do Ooh. you ID them? Like, are you Satoshi actually? Like, there's no way for the network to sort of fix that. The only fix fix would be to sort of put like some get everyone to move their coins to a hash address, right? Hey, update, like quantum computers are coming. Please move your coins to an hash address. Or one proposal I've seen is, is to make like this sort of intermediary that you have to go to and prove that you own the UTX, the keys. I don't know how that would work, right? Because I don't know how people can show up and prove to them, but there's no way to stop it. Because unless you can convince everyone on the Bitcoin blockchain to move their keys to a hashed address, then their keys might be stolen will be stolen by a quantum computer. That That's crazy. So, uh, you mm -hmm. know, even if you could convince everyone who's alive today, mm -hmm. we can assume maybe Satoshi, uh, you know, isn't or, you know, something happened to him. Um, there's a whole bunch of his coins that are vulnerable to that. Oh, yeah. I think I've, some I've coined this article said up to all of his coins. I think the majority of his coins are vulnerable, but up to like 20%. I want to say like around 20% of the Bitcoin network uses these older public key based um on-chain public key-based addresses, which would be vulnerable to quantum attacks. How would someone know if they had the, the vulnerable version of it versus the hash version? Oh, that's a good question. I would say if you used a modern, modern wallet, you're probably safe because I I because given the, the main reason they use hashing because they're smaller, right? And you can mm -hmm. do a lot more in them. So I think this came into prevalence around the like, um, I want to say like 2016, like bull run of 2017. So, right, because it's cheaper, so transaction fees are lower. So most people use hashing already. But if you aren't sure, it depends on what type of wallet you use and how those coins were created. And I'm not sure of a quick way to check right now. If you're an OG, you definitely use elliptic curve cryptography. But if you got into it relatively recently, or like, I would say after 2017, and used a modern wallet with the best practices, you probably used hash addresses. Okay, cool. So anyone who's got a ledger or a tracer, they're using hash addresses. Um, anyone who did crazy stuff back in the day on the on their hard drive, that you know, they need to be worried. Well, tracer is relatively. I don't know if that's because tracer is relatively older, also. So mm. they might also have used the, like, might have used the curve ones. Despite uh, my yeah. ignorance, does this have mm -hmm. any relation to Segwit, or is that completely uh... separate? Segwit did impose a new transaction type that did use hashing. So I, be I believe, I haven't looked at the documents, I believe that if you use Cedric addresses, they are hashed um, natively. So you don't have to do anything like that. I believe so. Does this particular vulnerability apply to any other blockchain that you're aware of? Like, does Ethereum oh. have the same problem? Or in a Cardano, there's a few folks from Cardano in the chat. Uh, I'm not familiar with Cardano, but I believe Ethereum also has this problem, right? Un unless you have and um, a, a, a cryptography that's resistant to quantum computers, you have this problem also. So if, if you have a smart contract and you use the keys that are vulnerable, you have to move them or you're gonna, they're going to get taken, essentially. Ah, that, that, that's crazy. I mean, part of me takes comfort in uh, it's probably Bitcoin is going to be the last thing that's broken. The first thing are going to yeah. be the banks and the nuclear codes and oh, <laughs> things that are a lot oh, more yeah. serious. I mean, it, it's... it's it's like, especially with these new ransom attacks, other software is like 
it, I don't know how it's alive right now. It is hobbling <laughs> to its destination. So I mean, if Bitcoin's like, like like a Tesla when it comes to tech. So like, it it will be fine. You will be not fine, but it will be. So many other things will go terribly wrong when this happens. Um, let, let's move from that uh, dystopian mm-hmm. future to potentially <laughs> another dystopian future. So before mm-hmm. the show, we we're talking a little bit about decentralization of the, the mm-hmm. Bitcoin network and, and the mining pools and some concerns there. Uh, can you lay out what the concerns are for Bitcoin's decentralization? I would say what those concerns are and the validity of it, unfortunately, comes from who's saying it, right? Because yeah, I see a lot of <laughs> Ethereum people who are like, oh my God, look at Bitcoin. It's, it's centralized. But like, the issue isn't hmm, the the issue is that the mining pools are centralized in United the United States, essentially, and then the United States could put undue pressure on those mining pools to do what mm-hmm. they want them to do, essentially. And it's it's not an issue right now because if you look at the OFAC list, because I I am I'm, I'm like an engineer, so I define words as like solid concrete things. A, a network is decentralized, in my opinion. If you can have a, a, a address that's on the OFAC list, which is the list of governments, like you cannot touch this. If you touch this, you will be facing federal charges. And if that transaction can still get through, it's decentralized. Mm. So that's currently true for things like Bitcoin, right? But Tether, no. If, if your address on Tether gets blacklisted, they're going to blacklist your coins also. So that sort of gives you the comparison model. And it and currently, Bitcoin isn't decent is is decentralized in that aspect. Because even if 50% of the network is in the United States, you still have 50% of miners who are willing to process these transactions that might not be United States, right? So you can still get a censored transaction through. The issue would be if you got something like a... I, I, I wrote this like article about it. Sorry if I'm talking too, sorry I'm talking too much. Um, it was about how the United States would attack Bitcoin. If, like, if, I were, if I were behind it, this is how I would attack Bitcoin. And, and it wouldn't necessarily be a 51% attack directly. I would simply get a selfish mining attack, which I think you can take over the network with only 20 to 30% of the network hash rate. So that's what I would do. Yeah. What, what's a selfish mining attack? Um, uh, I guess very high level of selfish mining attack is when a miner withholds blocks from the network in hopes to mess with other miners, to discourage them from mining, mess up their blocks, and build a longer chain then eventually, so if I'm a miner and I build a longer chain than you, essentially I can release that work and then all your work is trash, wasted. And then so so you, uh. you could build up from that. I think some research papers theorize if you get 30% of the hash power, hash rate, you can actually perform a selfish mining attack. So all, all this drama about 51% attacks, I mean, yes, a selfish mining attack would eventually result, could lead to a 51% attack, but it's not the 51% attack, attack itself. Right, is how you would get there. You would use a selfish mining attack to get there, essentially. That's very interesting. So it's like an economic attack on other mining uh, mm-hmm. uh, miners in the system. Uh, it's fascinating because uh, BFT uh, blockchains like Cosmos have kind of a thirty-three percent. If thirty-three percent of the uh, blockchain and uh, validators collude, uh, then you can essentially stop the blockchain. This feels like it's a very similar kind of thing, right? You're not double oh, yeah. spending, but you're basically stopping it uh, and, and perhaps oh, yeah. reducing the threshold to get to that fifty-one percent. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, does Monero have a similar concern around um, decentralization and and kind of uh, mining pools getting to that level of threshold? Um, I would say maybe right now because the threat 
hasn't presented itself, right? Because the, the official way to do something is to wait till the threat presents itself, then change. Don't pre don't preemptively change. Mm -hmm. But the way that um, Monero's mining works, it the government would it would be basically be impossible for the government to find the miners and force them to do a selfish mining attack because their their mining process is much more decentralized. And I think I don't want to get their name wrong. Like Howard Chu is, I mean, a genius in the Monero space, designed the um, or worked on the team that designed this algorithm. And it's really cool, really decentralized, and it basically is ASIC resistant. So there there aren't big centralization of mining pools in certain countries that are easily traceable, right? Because I, I could be mining on my computer and you the government won't be able to won't be able to find me versus a Bitcoin mining farm you can find easily. Ah, oh, that, that, that's very interesting because, uh, you know, mm -hmm. you, you need to spend a lot of money for the ASICs and have the power and have mm -hmm. facility. And, you know, it's, at some point you're a target, whereas you're saying here, like anyone with computers mining and it's in that sense, uh, more decentralized. Yeah. And Ethereum is also very similar now that it's going to proof of stake, right? Because you can you can have a Raspberry Pi in your corner and be running a validating node and things like that. So proof, proof of stake is much more easier in that way. You don't need, generally, you don't need KYC to um, do proof of stake. But they're different than that. But that's also much lower overhead. Thus, it's much harder to find these people. But there are other people leave other issues around proof of stake. So I'm not going to get, get get too far in that. And, and we definitely should not encourage KYC on proof of stake, yeah, <clears throat> Charles. <I> Charles Hoskinson. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, let, let's talk. I'd love your thoughts on like proof of work versus proof of stake. Do you believe one is more secure than the other? And if so, how? Uh, it depends on it depends on how you define secure from what. I would say I would I would guess mm -hmm. like because I mean all proof of, all proof of work isn't equal and all proof of stake is equal so I would guess if you're like if you fear government intervention proof of work that's similar to Bitcoin could be an issue right because it's big mining farms very easy to find these people and but like something like Monero right very hard to find these people I don't think I'm I'm gonna take a controversial approach oh I'm gonna get torn to shreds in the, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I I haven't seen evidence yet that proof of stake is inherently worse for decentralization than proof of work. Generally speaking, I haven't seen evidence of that. There are some theories that state that it could be right. The idea of that um, proof of stakers get more rich basically, and you can loot, lead to more situation that way. Cause if you have coins, you stake them, you get more coins. That sort of leads back into each other. But the same can be said for mining, right? If you have miners, you make Bitcoin, you buy more miners, things like that. So, but there are some, Good arguments on both sides, but Ethereum, for example, is actually pretty decentralized in that aspect. Like, I, the fun, the funny part is that given Ethereum's block times, you can actually get a uh, you can actually get a OFAC um, band address transaction through faster on Ethereum than you can on something like Bitcoin, for example. Mm. And, and that's just because the transactions on Ethereum tend to be faster than the 10 minute chunks that Bitcoin yeah. has. Yeah, it's all about like, like percentages, right? See, Bitcoin. Let's say half half a Bitcoin network is OFAC compliant, and then you, you have to wait ten minutes for each block. So if you do that 50-50 shot every ten minutes, it might take on average like twenty minutes. Whereas I think Ethereum, I don't know what Ethereum's block time is currently, but even if fifty percent of the miners on on Ethereum are like that, the block times are so much slower that you, your trans transaction would get mined much faster. I, I do love your definition of decentralization, which is if a nation state is actively trying to stop transactions, do they still mm -hmm. get through? And if the answer yeah. is yes, uh, you're kind of golden. And then there's a spectrum of, well, how quickly do they get through? And, and... Yeah. 
Cool. So you, you've built um, hardware wallets and, and I know, uh -huh. you know, a lot of people have asked me, you know, how do I, I keep my crypto secure? And I've, I obviously had the discussion about hot wallets versus cold wallets. As we look at hardware wallets, is there a way you evaluate the security of different hardware wallets and, and which would you say is more secure? Oh, I was a, I mean, just more secure in this sense of keeping. Well, perhaps let me oh, back up. Yeah. What, are the <laughs> what are the threats that someone needs to be uh, concerned about from a hardware wallet perspective? Um, I would say the two um, broad categories would be supply chain attacks. I guess, right? Like if someone like, you're unlikely someone to come to your house and hit you over the head with a hammer. Might happen, but very unlikely. Much more likely that someone's going to attack the supply chain, get into Amazon, sell you a hardware wallet that's like bad. And number two is I would say actually using that hardware wallet looks very different on Bitcoin than it does on Ethereum. Because unfortunately, sorry, not unfortunately, Bitcoin, Bitcoin to get all the cool hardware tech. If you're familiar with CoinKite's um, new wallet coming out, I think it's supposed to have like two different security, um, security chips on it, which is like, hardware module which is like really cool because bitcoin tech is so simple right but like you get somebody like i don't, I don't even think monero currently has multi-signature on hardware wise they just have the single sig and then ethereum has also a bunch of stuff too but it's more complex so the hardware wise aren't as cool as they are on bitcoin but sorry to answer your question two main attacks would be supply chain attacks yeah they have they announced, a, they, they announced a brand new one like literally i don't i, it's, I think it's on pre-order maybe if you go to the blog it might show up Let's see. Come on. Yeah, if you go to that, that one, Cold Car Q1. And this thing is really cool. It has two different um, hardware security modules in it. So in order for the big the big scary thing about hardware mod modules is that they are closed sourced, right? But if you, if you use yeah. two, you can split that risk. And then that in order for your wallet to get hacked, both would have to collude essentially. Which would be uh, like so from two different manufacturers. Yeah, and at yeah. the very least, if you were doing a supply chain attack, you'd have to be twice as sophisticated. Oh yeah, twice as sophisticated. It's it's, it's really cool. Like Bitcoin is get all the cool hardware wallets, but our hardware <laughs> is pretty cool. Like Trezor and Ledger are also really cool. So supply chain attacks is one, and then there's and there's privacy issues around hardware wallets also. I know you want to get to that. We get to that later maybe. But then the other side is how you actually use it, right? Because I don't want to scare anyone, right? But using a hardware wallet on Bitcoin is different because generally speaking, you're sitting to an address, right? And you can verify that address on your hardware wallet. So pretty straightforward. But on Ethereum or smart contracts in general, the address is, you can't verify, you can verify the address via, you have to do it off chain. And there's no way that that wallet can verify a smart contract, mm. for example, right? It's just like, you're sending some um, die to this address. Hopefully it's the right address, but it might not be the right address. So generally speaking, you have to use like, what I do when I send address, I use two different computers in tandem with my hardware wallet to verify that the address is the one I'm sending to. That, that, that's very interesting. So it's it's because you have that kind of physical verification that mm -hmm. if your, your computing device somehow was hacked, that you would have that second step that would prevent you from, at least let you notice that it was an issue. Maybe, but let's say I hack your computer, right? This has happened before. I hack your computer, and instead of sending to Kraken, you think, I, I put my address down there. So you're, you're on your computer, you say, oh, send money to here. Okay, it sounds good. You look in your hardware, the address is, is the one that's on the screen. That is true. But the actual address doesn't belong to Kraken. It belongs mm -hmm. to the hackers. So you've now signed a transaction from your screen on your hardware wallet that was 
it was fraudulent. You sign it, transmit it, and, and the money goes to the hacker and not you. So that's so, why I use two different screens, essentially. Ah, so it's almost like you're doing 2FA on the, the transaction yeah. address that you're sending to. Yeah, exactly. So and it gets more complex. But Bitcoin is relatively simple, right? Because it's just like an address. With Ethereum, it could get more complex. So what, what if that smart contract does something malicious? You have to audit it, and, and you don't know. Like, it's just very complex. There's so many complex movements on. So they're gonna inherently going to be less secure than Bitcoin, right? Because if you're simpler, you're more secure. If you're more functional, have a lot more things, more complex, you're generally less, less secure. I got to say, I'm, I'm freaking out a little bit right now because I sign dozens of transactions every day and I'm just like, click, click, click. <laughs> if it helps you, I also do that also. And I, I, I am also, I, I sweat a little bit when I see the transaction come. I'm like, is, is this one? Let me check again. Let me check this one more time. Let me check this one more time. Let me, let me check on my phone now. Okay, let, let me check on, my, on the computer over there. And it's like, because unfortunately, and it gets forcing, once you send a transaction, you can't get it back. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the, the powers of blockchain, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you mentioned privacy concerns with hardware wallets. Uh, tell us a bit more about that. Ooh, I guess so. When you, uh, I, I don't, I, I hate, I, I'm going to pretext this with, you should still use a hardware wallet. You should just make sure that you buy it privately. I'm going to pretext this. Like, don't, like, don't be like, oh, hardware wallets are insecure. I'm not going to use them. Like, no, 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 no. The, the, they're much more secure. But the issue is, I would say, going back to like Ledger, I think a couple of years ago, Ledger actually leaked the information of a lot of people who bought the hardware wallets. When you buy hardware wallet, you give them your credit card information, give them your name, your address, and they have this information on file for you. So if they get hacked, right, people can actually send let like um, letters to your home. They know where you live now because you ordered a hardware wallet there. So there's like privacy and security sort of go hand in hand there. But the cool thing is now that Ledger offers them, they partner with Best Buy. So you can actually show to Best Buy, pay cash for a ledger, and then you have a hardware wallet that's not tied to your address. And that's the way I would recommend do it. Or shameless plug, you can buy it via Anon Shop, which allows you to get things bought anonymously. But that's what, the privacy and security issue, right? Don't give your address away. And generally, when you're doing cryptocurrency, don't give your address away because like people know where you live, and there's no protections for you. They show up to your house and make you give up money. That that, that I think that applies to KYC and other things like that, right? Very good advice. Uh, I will yeah. say uh, certain states afford you the ability to have protection against that situation. Uh, I'm in Texas and, and, and we yes. have uh, the benefit <laughs> of that. Um, I did also want to, you mentioned a nine shop. So let's talk a little bit about that, which is, I think mm -hmm. one of the, the ways that you and I met on, on Twitter was I was mm -hmm. following your account. Um, tell us a bit about a non shop. If you want to take a look in, in your following long here, it's uh, you know, a non shop app on Twitter. Um, yeah, basically a non shop is a way for people to spend, it, it started with the idea of like, man, you know, you have, you have Amazon lockers and then you, you can send things to an Amazon locker anonymously, essentially. And then you, someone gives you the code. That was like the very core base, I, base model. And this works perfectly with Monero, right? Monero people love privacy. I love privacy. So I got some traction there that I was like running into um, centralization issues because like, if I take my money and go to Kraken, right? Kraken could eventually shut me down. Mm. So I, I decided to make, Expand it from the concierge service of me fulfilling the, the Amazon orders to lockers and have someone on the other side also do that. Ah, so, so now it's we, almost like a decentralized delivery system. Yeah, it's sort of like purse.io, but like private and with the narrow, essentially. The basic idea, and we also, purse.io doesn't do lo Amazon lockers, but we do Amazon lockers now also. That's very cool. So you can deliver it to an Amazon locker. You can have it delivered to your house. And, and how does that work? You, you send someone Monero, they buy something on Amazon and, and deliver it? 
Yeah, basically. And then uh, we never reveal your address, right? If it's an Amazon locker, obviously, I don't even know your address. But if, if you do ship it to an address, we use Amazon wish list, just like Persio. Persio uses. So only Amazon knows, only me and Amazon know your address. The, the random person on the other end fulfilling your order doesn't know your address. <laughs> this is awesome. So if you want to shop online and still be anonymous, uh, we mm -hmm. have a way to do it now, a non-shop. Yeah, uh, and it, I think it's one of the first truly anonymous ways to get something has always been an issue, right? How do I buy something? Do, do I go to PO box and get a, an address there? But using Amazon lockers, which I don't know how long I'll be able to do that before Jeff Bezos wises up to the fact that he has essentially made anonymous <laughs> drop points throughout the entire nation at scale, which is feels feels like sort of like a broken strategy. But for, for now, it works and we can do it. <laughs> <laughs> Am I going to have to edit that portion out? For you know, I think I'm, I have a, a personal FBI officer who's watching me and <laughs> might get some ideas. <laughs> like, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> well, I'd like to. I'd like to kind of jump on this idea of getting physical goods uh, anonymously and, and mm -hmm. just talk a little bit about localmonero.co, uh, which mm -hmm. I think is the way to get Monero anonymously. Uh, is this something that that uh, you have experience with or an opinion on? Oh yeah, local um, local Monero is great. They're very awesome, especially if you're doing particularly like large amounts. And, and and personally, I would only do the cash one, right? Because the idea of sending my bank information, all that stuff, and getting that involved is um, I I personally don't like that. But they offer that. They've been around for years, so they're definitely trusted. And the process, the spreads can be a, a little bit high, especially for cash. I think you see like a ten percent spread on the buy because it is such a physical process and things like that, which. Which, which can run into issues, which is, a, which is very different than Anon Shop. My website hopefully allows earners to earn Monero by simply having an Amazon account. Just very, just very different, I would say. But local Monero is also awesome. Awesome, awesome. Um, you know, as you're talking through some of your security practices, I'm, I'm very mm -hmm. intrigued. Uh, if you have a, a set of like, here's the, the five to seven things that people should do to keep themselves safe and anonymous in the crypto world. Ooh. Uh, I would say probably don't give out your address and name when it comes to like, like um, buying like Harawa, things like that. Probably avoid KYC. You know, you if 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 your choice is no big no cryptocurrency or KYC cryptocurrency, you know, obviously you got to pick the lesser of those two evils. But there's so many different things. Like I know RoboStat started up, and this really cool thing that allows you to like trade. Bitcoin on Lightning Network, and it's super cool. So, like, whatever flavor of coins you like, there is going to be a, a decentralized way to get them. And I would say just invest in that. And then just start. And the, the biggest thing I say, number one, is just start somewhere. Don't get too overwhelmed with like being optimized. Oh, what about this? Well, what if they know my name, my face? Like, just start somewhere and improve over time. Because even by starting, you're, you're like 10 magnitudes above everyone else. That's and awesome. you, yeah, sorry. And you don't have to be the most secure. You, you just have to be more secure than the person next to you. Ah, <laughs> uh, so this is the bear rule. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, if a hacker's going to hack someone, they're going to go for the easy person, not for the person that's, like, slightly harder to hack, right? So just don't stress too much about it. Just start somewhere. Awesome. I, I love that. Is there a, a common mistake <laughs> that you see people making that you'd be like, oh, okay, like, that's something you've seen people mess up often? Um, I would say a lot of people... And it's unfortunate you're going to make mistakes. Like when I first started, I used Coinbase, right? Obviously, KYC for, for, for forever since they have my information. But I would say that's one of the big mistakes. And also when people, the big mistake I would say biggest is, is being overconfident in what you have. People think, oh, I'm super secure. I use a hardware wallet. And it turns out they took a photo of their backup and put it on like Google Cloud. 
which is like, <laughs> like, like constantly be learning, be humble, yeah. listen to people like Vanessa, follow, follow them and just get ex- listen to experts on the issue and, and never, never feel like you, you know too much. Awesome. I, I love that. Yeah. Be humble. Keep learning. Um, mm-hmm. This is a journey. We're all in it together. Um, accelerate Profits and just gives you such kudos, uh, Donnelly says. What a great guest. <laughs> knowledgeable and helpful. Uh, definitely 100% agree. Um, the, the you know hour and a bit that we spent together. Oopsie. Yeah, <laughs> and my camera. The, 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 the privacy is extending to your camera as well. I love it. <laughs> I have this secret built-in um, anonymizing feature put, put on. Oh, no. Let me see if I can get it to autofocus. Sorry about this. Yeah, no worries. Oh no, it's not autofocusing. Well, I'm gonna get a new one, a new one after this interview. Sorry if people can't see my beautiful face anymore. I, I think that's a that's a wonderful way to kind of end, end the show is to go out private. Um, Don Lee, is there anything else you'd like to share with folks before we, we sign off? Um, I would say if you're listening to Vanessa, thank you so much. You're the the salt of the crypto space you're doing the homework you're studying someone who has a diverse opinion you're, you're getting out of the echo chamber and i feel like doing really if you're if you're here today thank you so much you're making the space better by educating yourself and not getting locked into like making crypto by religion right because it's just in a day is code and things like that so always listen to different opinions I, I, don't, I don't care if you're a hardcore bitcoin you should also listen to people who do other things like monero cardano ethereum the ideas are always going to be out there and you should definitely invest in them and broaden you're, you're full of knowledge, right? Because the worst case scenario, you have, you have some good arguments against it. And maybe you might learn something and change your opinions on it. That's beautiful. And and <laughs> with that, like, uh, you know, I have wonderful folks like Don Lee on the show across all different ecosystems. So please like, subscribe. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. I really, uh, you know, would love to have more interesting conversations uh, like this. Uh, Don Lee, thank you so much. Thank you to mm-hmm. everyone who joined us. And I'll see you all uh, next time. Cheers. Bye. <laughs>